Today on the show, we'll be featuring another segment from our correspondent, Miyoko, who spoke to folks from the community cabbage. We're also interviewing John Threlfall of the Fine Arts Department, who's going to speak a little bit about the upcoming diversity writing contest. And as always, we'll be featuring uh, two uh, staff writers from the Martlet this week, Cormac O'Brien and Caitlin Kukoska. But first... UVic is trying out a new pilot program to help students with mental health issues. The psychiatrist-led interdisciplinary team, or PIT project, began in 2013. It sets students up with a 30-minute assessment with a family doctor and a psychiatrist in an effort to help reduce the wait times for full psychiatric appointments. Joining me to talk about the program is Dr. Marilyn Thorpe. She is an Island Health on-site psychiatrist at UVic. Good morning. Good morning. Um, could you help uh, just explain what a pit crew appointment would be like for a student? Okay, a pit crew appointment would be arranged between the patient and family doctor at University Health Services. They would have decided uh, that they were stuck with an issue treating mental health, and they would come up with a question that they wanted answered. Sometimes the question the family doctor wants is different than the patient. The uh, appointment would be booked, and then on the day of the appointment, the psychiatrist and the family doctor meet for five minutes, and the family doctor reviews uh, the patient's case and what the issues are. The patient then joins for 20 minutes, and the three of them work, the psychiatrist, family doctor, and patient work together to sort out uh, what the issue is, which may be clarifying, getting more history, and coming up with a plan. And then afterwards, the psychiatrist goes to chart, and the family doctor and the patient write the prescription or discuss what the treatment plan is and get it ready to roll. And how is this project developed? It started in in 2013, the waiting list to see a, a psychiatrist for a full consultation was an average 43 days, which often meant someone lost their term. And to see, it was up to even nine months, which would mean you lost your year. We were very distressed about that and trying to think what we could do instead. Uh, there's a TED Talk by Atul Gwanda that suggested that as medicine becomes more complicated, specialists and their tests congregate with the patient instead of a patient going from test to test and doctor to doctor. We wondered if we went down the hall and the psychiatrist and family doctor met with the patient, if we could do what the patient needed faster without doing a full consult. The full consult requires an exploration of childhood, parents' childhoods, um, very in detail how relationships are going as well as symptoms. And that's not necessary sometimes to fix what the problem is. So we tried it, it we started trying it in May of 2014 and it worked so well we reduced the wait time to 11 days to see a psychiatrist in a pit a lot of people don't then need a consult, so that reduced the wait time to 22 days for a full consult. And we've been able to maintain that even when we have uh, only two-thirds of the psychiatry days covered compared to when we're everyone's there and we're operating at 
are the limit. And and just to clarify, is it uh, eleven days for a wait if you don't need a full consult and twenty right, three for if a you... pit? So it's eleven days for a pit appointment. The name pit came up as a that if medical people descended descended on a patient like a pit crew in a race, mm. rather than have the patient run to from appointment to appointment and have to pay for parking and all those things mm-hmm. um, especially when you're sick it's very hard to navigate so we've called it a pit and when we applied for the funding we were just applying for that piece it by the time the funding actually the full application for funding went in it be, had become a much larger project so we came up with the psychiatric interdisciplinary team for the big project and the pit appointments remain like a pit crew Mm-hmm. And um, do you have any idea as to why the wait times were typically so long? Uh, the number of patients. When we did a random survey, 125 students a week come to University Health Services with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does, say, an appointment with, uh, with the pit crew differ from, say, an appointment with University Counseling? I don't know a lot about counseling, except that I know um, they are a one, usually, typically, um, if you're in crisis, you come in and get whoever's doing the crisis for the day, and you are not likely to be booked with them again. Uh, what we try to do with a PIT appointment is, and, and at University Health Services, we're trying very hard, if you have mental illness, to keep you with one family doctor consistently. That if you see a psychiatrist, it's the one psychiatrist consistently. If you need ongoing talk therapy, then a psychiatrist might become involved and do that. Or part of our project has been to get funding for um, a therapist who does six to eight sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy especially with depression and anxiety. So those are much more treatment longer term than at counseling services where it will be, I'm guessing, listening to the difficulties and making suggestions. But at counseling, they're not going to have access to medication. Sometimes if someone's in, if a student's in big trouble, counseling will bring them over to us so that we can take over their care. Mm-hmm. And are there pl- this pilot program has been in existence for about four years. Are there plans to make it a, a permanent part of the of the UVic mental health service? Well, the pit the pit will is sustainable without funding. It actually saves the government money for a psychiatrist to do half an appointment instead of a whole appointment, right? So the government uh, will like it, and we really. Uh, like it because it allows us to see many students faster. They have been negotiating. Part of the project has been that we have a, a psychiatric nurse four days a week, and we believe we have the funding to sustain that position. She actually works about 40 hours in four days, and there's uh, some talk now about getting more mental health nursing because we're desperate for it. We are trying hard to get our um, CBT therapist maintained. 
Um, hey, could you clarify would, what the what a CBC CBT okay cognitive is? behavioral therapist? Mm. So it's someone with a master's degree who is doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Looks at how a person thinks. So we have ideas about ourselves, others, and our future. When we're depressed, our thoughts are typically "I suck," "Everyone hates me," "My whole life's gonna be terrible." I may as well be dead. So it's looking at how those ideas um, came about and how they keep you depressed and starting to change the way you think about that. Anxiety would be, I'm very frightened and incapable. Uh, everyone will judge me, so I'm afraid to say anything in class. I'm going to be very limited in my future. So cognitive behavioral therapy helps people learn different ways to think. Another program we started with this funding money is a managing emotions program for people who have severe um, emotional dysregulation issues. Mm -hmm. So we have an introductory lecture for that group and then an introductory foundation module, six weeks in a row of, of group learning about um, skills to manage emotion. Mm -hmm. And then we have advanced groups. The trick with the advanced groups is having enough of us free to run the groups. And so we're hoping that the university will um, be willing to fund more of an MA therapist role so that we can expand that. Because it, we've been doing really well and the students have really found it useful. But we're not sure how much of it we're going to be able to offer in the winter because we are so taxed for enough people to just assess. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an issue trying to get enough staff to do treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if, if a student is in mental distress, uh, what are some options for you know getting some immediate help? Okay, we have rapid access to the clinic uh, Monday to Friday. There are nurses who will immediately assess, and there are rapid access to doctor spots, and we have rapid mental health spots. Once the family doctor's been connected, if a pit's needed, then we can book them in right away. Um, we have 10 of those usually available a week. So if someone was in distress during office or business hours, they would come right to... Um, University Health Services. If they were in distress outside of those hours, um, they go to the emergency department at Royal Jubilee. Royal Jubilee um, tries to help them in the short term, and we have now got a pretty good connection where when they see someone at the hospital, they let us know right away. They have our pamphlets, so they have a number to call so that the next working day we can get someone directly in. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Thorpe, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, that was Dr. Marilyn Thorpe. Uh, she was an Island Health on-site psychiatrist, and we were speaking about the psychiatrist-led interdisciplinary team pilot project at UVic.
Now, since 2009, UVic's Diversity Writing Contest has published poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction from UVic students related to the theme of diversity, equity, and or inclusion. And alongside this contest is a separate competition for spoken word and slam, which is open to both UVic students and the greater Victoria community. Both contests are currently accepting submissions until January 9th, 2017. I'm joined by John Threlfall, Special Projects Coordinator with the Fine Arts Department here at UVic to tell us more. Good morning. Morning, Hugo. Um, Could you tell us uh, the reason, first of all, for holding a diversity writing contest in the first place? Well, I think it's to give uh, give a voice to uh, people who often feel like they don't have a voice, whether that's on campus or in society as a whole. Uh, You know, we are certainly me over in Fine Arts. uh, We're a very creative campus, and we like to give people the opportunity to express their creativity outside of just class assignments and things like that. You know, we've got we've got the Martlet, we've got CFUV, we've got the various undergraduate journals as well. Uh, mm. It's nice to have a contest, though, where you can actually get something more than a grade for your work. You can get some cash prize. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you find that the contest addresses a, a particular social need? Well, I mean, it certainly allows people to give voice to issues they want to talk about, whether, you know, you want to have a piece about Indigenous representation, about what it's like to be a queer person, you know, uh, what it's like to be, it doesn't have to be about life on campus, but life in society, uh, if you happen to be disabled, you know, it, it does give a voice to people whose experiences are sort of off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Um, and who are the judges this year? Uh, this year's judge is um, Anne Bernice Thomas, who is the City of Victoria's Youth Poet Laureate, and mm. she's also an undergraduate over in the theater and the writing departments. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you find that there's a sort of a particular theme or a set of subjects that entrants kind of tend to explore? Not really. We've had things all across the board. And, uh, you know, the, the the spoken word aspect of the writing contest is only this is the fourth year for it. So it's mm-hmm. relatively new. Uh, and it's really fantastic to see what people are commenting on. Uh, last year, the second place winner last year was actually a high school student. She wasn't even in UVic yet, but she was, you know, speaking about being a youth, having a voice in society. Uh, we've had other people talk about the immigrant experience, what it's like to come to Canada. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any one topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see you brought a, a clip here uh, mm-hmm. from the most recent uh, winner of of the spoken word of the spoken word contest. Um, is there anything that we want to know, sort of before? As Annie Lepage, <clears throat> she won last year. It was really a fantastic piece, and I think it showcases the difference between uh, spoken word and written poetry. Written poetry, even though it's written on a page, you can read it out loud. Uh, spoken word or slam, they're intended to be performed, and I think you get a great sense of that from her piece. Let's uh, take a quick listen to it now. My people are the people of mud, sweat, and tears. We come from hundreds of years of death, violence, and destruction. We are the children of brutality, rebellion, and invasion. The Democratic Republic of Frankenstein's monster. So, I guess that these veins, they run with the blood of the innocent slain. And this blood sings military marches. This heart beats like a soldier's drum. It pounds like fists on doors on the night that somebody's father disappeared because it turns out that fear is a chemical that might actually have the potential to rearrange the DNA on a mother's unborn child. And so while I grew up in the land of organic breast milk and honey, we were always running on the electricity of a white, hot, maternal terror. See, I'm first generation untraumatized. My mother is still more fluent in fear and lies than in English. And her mother 
And if you want to hear the rest of that, uh, feel free to go to the UVic uh, writing diversity writing contest website, and they have an archive of all the past winners. Um, do you have any potential advice for sort of like entrance? <laughs> Realize that you have to perform your poem live if you do get chosen as one of the winners. We have three winners this year for a second, third. Uh, you're going to have to perform it live at the diversity uh, diversity research forum uh, at the end of January. So I would say practice mm -hmm. <laughs> and and realize what makes the difference, like I said before, between written poetry and uh, slam or spoken word piece. Uh, we do a lot of outreach to the spoken word community, hoping that they'll enter. And uh, because a really strong spoken word piece is a lovely thing to behold, you know, it's it's that wonderful middle ground between acting and uh, and the written page. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what are the prizes? Uh, cash. Cash prizes this Ooh. year. Uh, QP, local QPs, uh, 917, 951, and 4163 have ponied up uh, $200 for the first prize, $100 for second prize, and $50 for the third prize. Mm-hmm. Um, and... If people want to find out more, where should they go? Yeah, so go to the uh, UVic Library website, uh, or you can just Google uh, UVic Diversity Writing Contest, and you'll find all the information on there. January 9th is the submission deadline. Uh, all you have to do is record a video of you performing your piece. It doesn't have to be a fancy video, just you recording it. You can be on your iPhone, and send it to me, John T at uvic.ca. Sounds good. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Hugo, thanks very much. Uh, John Thralfel is a communications officer and special projects coordinator uh, from the UVic Fine Arts Department, and he was speaking to me about UVic's diversity writing contest. And now uh, it's time for some headlines from the community, and uh, Salma's got them. What's in the news this week? Well, good morning. I'm Salma Isan, and these are your CFUV headlines. Uh, despite winning the approval of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal cabinet, Kinder Morgan's pipeline expansion is still far from a go, and opponents have already taken to the streets and threatened civil disobedience. Many students made their way downtown on Thursday to take part in the protest, and with so much of the UVic campus as well as surrounding schools and neighborhoods lying on Indigenous territory, it's not a surprise that there were over a thousand protesters voicing their concerns last week. With the Alberta Premier Rachel Notley in Vancouver this week promoting the pipeline, many have taken to remember the defeat of the Northern Gateway Pipeline earlier this year. Even after greenlighting the project, the Federal Court of Appeal ruled last June that the government failed to meaningfully consult Indigenous peoples on the Enbridge project and quashed the federal approval. As we've seen before, the federal seal of approval doesn't always hold. Students and other concerned Canadians alike can stay tuned and stay hopeful that our beautiful land will remain respected. And getting around this beautiful land should get a lot easier for many students as the development of Victoria's cycling network has moved into high gear. Dozens of parking stalls will be cut due to the bike lane construction in downtown Victoria and the construction of the first two-way separated bike lane is garnering concerningly a split audience. Some business owners are concerned about the loss of downtown parking, but Mayor Lisa Helps has said that rather than looking at this new infrastructure as lost parking, the focus really should be on the opportunities to come. She said Victoria is finally catching up on a lot of other places in the world, encouraging people to use alternate modes of transportation to get downtown. And yesterday, as many of you know, was the first day of final season for many students. And with high stress levels all over campus, our first snowfall of the season really kickstarted the holiday vibes. As finals are in full gear and the end of semester is on the horizon, many students are finalizing their plans and headed home for the break. With this in mind, the International Student Services is asking UVic students, staff, faculty, and alumni to take part in the holiday dinner program. This program is an opportunity to host two or more international students for dinner over the holidays. The deadline is fast approaching, though. You can register at uvic.ca by December 9th to take part in the program and make this experience a new tradition to the holiday season. On that note, 
in the weather, it really does seem like anyone uh, can talk about, all anyone can talk about is Victoria's snow shower last night, myself included. Last night's snow and slush turned into this morning's ice on Victoria roads, and several crashes were reported on the Pat Bay Highway early this morning. Drivers are encouraged to be particularly cautious during their commutes today. This winter weather has triggered Victoria's extreme weather protocol. Uh, an extra 85 shelter beds have opened around the city, bringing the total number of available shelter spaces to 395 last night. You can expect a relatively sunny day today with a mix of clouds, and we'll be getting a high of 5 degrees with lows of minus 3 degrees later tonight. Currently, though, it is 3 degrees at the University of Victoria. And those are your CFUV headlines. Thanks, Alma. Uh, did you do you have any trouble getting to campus this morning with the with the snow and all that? I mean, I actually live on campus, but getting to the station was kind of a trek. I did almost fall. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for me as well. Like it's it's uh, taking the bus. I usually bike, but it, you know, you, it's kind of tough to uh, to leave enough room for like buses if they're late. So for if sure. anyone if anyone is taking the bus. Uh, be sure to, to leave in a little bit of extra time if you can. Definitely. Selma, thanks so much for that. Of course. And now our correspondent Miyoko went to find out what the community cabbage was all about. You see some members of the club serving free food behind a stand around the sub every Friday at noon. And this is the first part of a glimpse backstage, if you will. Everybody, picture this. Picture a world where everyone's eating out of the dumpster, and you just sit there and you go, whoa, Dave the Visionary. <laughs> it was just like that, yeah. Michael gives a pretty good impersonation. Hi, this is Miyoko speaking to you. As I was looking for people who were part of the sustainability movement at the University of Victoria in Canada, I kept hearing about the community cabbage. So I met a few dedicated members, Megan, Kaya, Michael, Nash, and Justin, who told me about what they were doing, what they were thinking, and how it all started out back in 2014. It came from a group of students who regularly dumpster dived, and we found that we had much more food than we ourselves could eat. Um, and so we started having these distribution dinners. Did you guys go into that? Okay. Yeah, we'd get together once a week and have this potluck meal, um, and people would take it home. It would be like grocery shopping for a week. Um, And we realized that it would be really neat. Like, dumpster diving, there's a bit of a subculture of that in Victoria, but it's, it's quite undercover, and we wanted to expose it a little bit more because on one hand, it's really exciting to get all this free food, but it's also quite disturbing the amount of food that is getting wasted daily um, and and we only access a small scale of that Um, and so we had this vision of um, bringing this food to students um, and kind of introducing the the idea that this was waste food um, and things that that would normally just go straight into the landfill but presenting it such that it was this really delicious, nourishing meal. This conversation inspired me to learn more about what kind of waste we're talking about exactly. I came across the Value Chain Management Centre website, which provides studies on food waste in Canada. In their latest report, you can read, 
The demand for food is rising in many countries. To feed 9 billion people by 2050, the world needs to produce at least 50% more food. However, climate change could cut crop yields by more than 25%. Unless we change how we produce and handle food and manage our natural capital, food security will be at risk for our present population regardless of location. We'd get together um, once a week and dumpster dive for this one meal that we'd serve on campus a week and then we'd collect all this food and we'd cook it in our community houses. There were about three houses and we'd get together in all our respective kitchens um, and produce this meal and we'd bring it to campus and it was pretty, at the beginning it was pretty bedraggled and, and kind of people would be showing up with pots of soup and things like that. Um, and then it started to get a little more streamlined and we um, we developed a connection with a grocery store that um, decided to donate food to us weekly and we developed a connection with a, a nearby church that now allows us to use their uh, their kitchen space um, and we started to become a little bit more legit <laughs> and um, and so now what we're pushing for is to get a kitchen space dedicated on campus um, so that we can we can really engage with students in a, in a much more accessible way and and start to um, really work on developing food literacy skills um, like how to cook how to relate to food how to create community around food um, creating a space for those kinds of activities on campus and hopefully these will be skills that the students will be able to take with them beyond um, the scope of their university experience and they'll become much more mindful eaters mindful consumers and um, yeah have a really positive impact on the way food gets distributed the Value Chain Management Center also gives a concrete idea of the situation with a few numbers. 31 billion Canadian dollars is the quantifiable value of food waste in Canada in 2014. Put in perspective, that means about 30% of what Canadian agriculture generated in 2012. It's higher than the combined gross domestic product of the 29 poorest countries. It's more than how much Canadians spent on food in restaurants in 2011. And there's more about the cost that it takes to manage the waste. The report states that annual food waste costs Canada more than $100 billion. I definitely don't look at our food system the same. I can't walk into a grocery store with the same mindset I had two years ago. Um... Previously, I would make a list, and on that list would be like bananas, apples, oranges, whatever else I wanted, and you'd go in there and you'd pick the nicest looking apple and the prettiest bananas, and you would just pay for it and go on your way. Um, but now that I've realized that often grocery stores will throw out their food that doesn't look perfect even though there's nothing integrally wrong with it. Um, now when I go to a grocery store to get food, I don't even go in the front doors right away. I will go around back and see what I can find there. And then oftentimes it's so overwhelming and large in amount that you don't have to go into the grocery store after to buy anything because you have more than you need from what they have wasted. In the Value Chain Management Center report again, 
You will also read that the value of consumers' waste estimation in 2014 is 14.6 billion Canadian dollars, almost half of the food waste value in Canada in the same year. My mom's Japanese, and, and we've had... Um, she always would give us a little idea of what the meaning of eating was in the sense that it was not just us partaking in this meal but also a culmination of all the people who had come together to um, to produce the food that, that ended up on our plate. Um, and so she was very um, deliberate about communicating to us the importance of not wasting food. And, and she had this saying about how if we left one grain of rice on the bowl, it would make the farmer blind, the farmer who had produced the rice, it would make him blind. Um, and that's kind of an extreme example, but it was just like this idea of really valuing the food you eat and appreciating the steps by which it came to you. Um, and so when I first came to university, I don't know, it was, it was a struggle to, to figure out how to cook for myself and things like this. And I heard about dumpster diving, um, and I went to try it out. Um, just by myself, I went behind a grocery store and, and I peeked in. I'd never done it before. And there was just like this mountain of cheese in packages. And I was like, holy smokes, this is just like $500 worth of cheese. And then on sort of like submerged under that was this package of rice that had split. And it was spilling grains of rice all over into the dumpster. And I was thinking about all the, all the farmers who were going blind. <laughs> yeah, and so that was kind of where the food justice idea comes from for me is it's really unethical to be wasting food yeah you can find all kinds of stuff in there uh, produce is the most common but um, you can find nuts and milk and yogurt and cheese um, flowers um, uh, really anything that they sell could end up in their dumpsters. There's a ridiculous amount of bread. Um, there's a lot of meat um, also, which I find to be most sad. Um, yeah, really anything on the shelf can and does end up in dumpsters. So yeah, there's been sort of a learning curve with, uh, we call it quality control <laughs> in terms of like um, what we actually decide to harvest or take from the dumpster. And uh, so I remember early on, like we were just, with bringing out new people dumpster diving, they're just like <laughs> ecstatic about all the food that you find and it's all free, right? And so there's a bit of this like, uh, these glory moments of just wanting to take everything and um, so then so we take all, basically like everything that's edible in the dumpster and we bring it back and, and then we realize like oh man like this is actually completely rotten or like we have like 30 pumpkins and we don't know what to do with them and uh, yeah so I guess like early on we were yeah we were taking in a lot more and now we sort of make judgment calls like when we're when we're actually out there in the dumpster and we say like okay are we really going to use this or are we just going to end up throwing it out ourselves afterwards and so that i think people have their own way about going about those decisions but uh yeah it's been sort of a learning curve for all of us this is the good layer they they hide it all <laughs> Look, this is like such a good layer right yeah, here. Yeah, the broccoli. <laughs> what about those peppers? Okay, yeah, just... grab a couple more peppers maybe. Yeah. There's like a bit more room in this box. Oh yeah, we'll keep oh. Grab a couple things. Yeah, we got Oh, we got some nice like uh like sage and and spices oh, yeah. and stuff oh, yeah. and yeah, berries. Yeah, there's like and... a whole basil plant. 
Yeah, so you want yeah, some? Uh, you want some yams? Yeah, yams would be great. <coughs> so grab some yams then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah and broccoli would yeah. be good. You got more broccoli? I'll just take one. Yeah, I think we got a couple. We hold a dumpster diving workshop every year. If you want to look out for that, and um, the first year it was um, my friend and I went to it. And we were kind of unsure what was going on. We never thought we'd get involved with something like this. And we went and we had a lot of fun. And then I was telling my dad about it that night or shortly after. And he was just absolutely taken aback. He was never heard of the concept. He was worried about it. And then uh, as the year went by, kind of like eased him into it and worked on it. And then at the following year's dumpster dive workshop I was considered like an expert at that point so I was actually teaching people how to do it and then I got to see how I'd come full circle in the year and how now my dad's like on board and I've gotten uh yeah it was just interesting to reflect on and it's just all throughout the year how it's like evolved in my life has been very interesting Sometimes it hasn't even expired, and you don't even see any signs of dents in cans or whatever, and it makes me question. We, do, we sometimes do dumpster forensics in the sense <laughs> that like, we, figure out, we try to figure out at least why certain things are in the dumpster, and we just can't add it up all the time. And so we have to sort of figure, try to figure out and make up reasons on our own and be like... So how many times have we asked each other, you know, why do you think this was thrown away? It's not expired. And we all come up with different stories, and it's, uh, it's all questions that we'll never be able to answer. Yeah, when you jump in a dumpster and, uh, and you start rummaging through it and somebody just, like, is totally repulsed immediately, but then you start pulling out things and they go, wait a minute, why isn't this edible? Why are we throwing this out? And they change, and then they start going in the next dumpster, you know, they'll be like, okay, I'll jump in the next one. And, and they start pulling out broccoli or peppers and, or packaged meats, and, and you go, yeah, we've totally changed this person's idea. There is such a negative stereotype around dumpster diving that it um, discourages people from trying. But, um, yeah, no, I never have come across uh, someone living in the streets, as you said, dumpster driving. It's mostly always been students. Um, it's uh, really any demographic could participate. I remember I was... Um, diving and a, um, a man came up with his young son and he was teaching him how to dumpster diving, telling him about the environmental impacts of what was before him. And then when they found a bunch of potatoes and salad greens and stuff, the, his son started talking about how he was going to make dinner out of it. So it was, uh, that was interesting as well. So here was the first part of exploring the activity and ideas of the Community Cabbage Fellows. I hope they inspired you. We will continue to listen to them go into more depth with the subject next time. Don't you know, talking about a I want to thank Miyoko for that piece on the community cabbage. And if you have any ideas uh, for what she should cover, send her a message at miyokoradio at gmail.com. And I'm pleased to have uh, two folks from the Martlet with me today. Uh, Miles, 
<laughs> Miles Sauer, Editor-in-Chief, and Cormac O'Brien, a staff writer. Good morning. Hey, Hugo. I'm, I'm just happy to be here, alive, given the ice on the roads at the moment. So, yeah, mm-hmm. very happy to be here. Yeah, that full inch of, of it's ice. It's um, So, a lot's happened since yesterday. Uh, you can the, say that again. <laughs> a lot's happened since Monday. Let's t- talk a little bit about uh, last night's UBSS board meeting. Uh, Cormac, you were there. Could you give us some highlights? I had the honor of being there. Well, I mean, if I'm completely honest with you, there was just about one highlight, um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't going through 11 pages of course union policy. Um, I imagine it was a it was an addition to the agenda that wasn't brought up at the beginning of the meeting. Uh, it was an addition about halfway through the main business, and it was uh, a question put forward by Jordan Kitso. Uh, who's, I believe, the events coordinator for the UVSS. Director of events, yeah. Director of events. Uh, and it was he wanted to pass a motion that would uh, give us a referendum in the new spring term, and it was a referendum that would determine whether or not students wanted to defund uh, the Vancouver Island Public Interest Research Group, or VIPERG as they're commonly known, uh, and redistribute some of the money and then save some of the money. Um, and I understand that there was a representative from Viper who was there that night, but the discussion happened after they left the room. Was there... Do they have any idea that this was going to happen? Uh, no, I talked to Dakota, who was uh, who was there promoting. Uh, he wanted UVSLs, sorry, excuse me, UVSS help with a, a conference that Viper are hosting in the new year. Uh, Dakota had no idea that this was going to happen. Um, now the agenda was a re- uh, was uh, amended at the beginning of the meeting, uh, but this amendment wasn't included then. It was only uh, after Dakota had left and halfway through the meeting that this referendum was brought up. No board members asked Dakota any questions while he was there. Uh, it was all very much kind of just a last-minute quick addition to the agenda. Mm-hmm. And, like, was this this was not expected by anyone in the room? It didn't seem like it. I mean, I, I really don't know. I imagine, I mean, I would hope Jordan had some kind of notion that he was going to bring it up, you know, before, you know, it was, I'm guessing it wasn't a split-second decision. Um, but the there were definitely some members of the board who seemed a little blindsided by this. And there was quite a bit of discussion over, uh, you know, why this was being brought up now. That was the big question, was why was this having to be voted on tonight? Why can't we, you know, talk to people from Viperk? There are members of the board who are actively involved with Viperk. None of them were there that evening, and that was a concern that was raised. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was only 14 members of the board at the board meeting. Uh, There's supposed to be, I think, 21 or 22. Um, So they're missing quite a bit of the board. But a lot of the people there who were pushing for this referendum to be held uh, wanted, wanted to vote on it tonight. Hmm. Um, and I see there. this was kind of uh, inspired by uh, action taken at the University of Waterloo regarding their public interest group? Yeah, so they have what I believe is called the, again, kind of similar to the Waterloo Public Interest Research Group. Something like that. Uh, and back in <clears throat> September, I believe, the students at University of Waterloo voted to defund that. And it was quite a significant margin. Not surprising, considering I think if you ask students if they want to reduce their student fees, most of them are going to say yes, no matter you know, who's losing out. Um, but again, I mean, there was one referendum held in one university in Canada uh, a month ago, and that seemed to be all the evidence that the, the board had on that this was a good idea. Mm-hmm. And just to provide some context, the the wording of the motion uh, kind of goes into, like, whereas, like, Waterloo, water, the Waterloo student body decided to uh, remove the their 475 fee, uh, that they felt that UVic students should have a, a similar opportunity uh, to make these kinds of decisions so that they wanted to reallocate uh, $3 that currently go to Viperg uh, to uh, the food bank, to clubs, to course unions, uh, etc. Now, has, has Viperg responded? They went off on Twitter last night after... 
things kind of started blowing up. Um, they fact-checked a lot of things that we kind of tweeted secondhand from the board, including that they run a surplus. Um, yeah, they they were whoever was running that Viper account was not happy. They called the UVSS out for pushing this forward without any proper discussion with them, um, for not knowing the history of the group, um, all kinds of things. It wasn't even discussion. I mean, as far as I'm aware, I don't think even the food bank were aware that they would be getting this money if, if this referendum, you know, were to pass. So I think there, I think it's pretty clear to say that there was just a real lack of communication on all sides here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, last night, Kevin Tupper released a, a statement, basically, uh, uh, apologizing for this whole this whole thing. Could you sort of go into that? I was asleep. Miles, you might want to take this one. Yeah, it was at like 12.30 in the morning that we got a statement from Kevin Tupper and it was just a big, long, like, sorry, um, trying to remove it. Uh, definitely, like, apologizing for what was admittedly, like, a huge lack of transparency. Um, I'll just try and find, like, some good quotes. Uh, yeah, he says, Our process surrounding this motion was deeply flawed and problematic, and for my role in that, I am sorry. Um, I know that everyone of our, every one of our board members has the interest of students in the UVSS at heart. Uh, so, yeah, um, on Monday, they are going to have another motion to kind of vote to rescind this motion that they passed last night um that also has to pass with a majority vote of the board of directors so hopefully like all 21 members are available to show up um and i mean we'll see what happens like the referendum could still go ahead if there isn't enough votes against it mm -hmm. um and maybe to just like provide some context could we give uh folks some idea of sort of what viper does and like in the community and here uh, yeah, so they're a public research group, as uh, Cormac kind of said. Sorry, I'm just trying to dig up some of the tweets that they sent last night because they were, um, they worded much better than I would. Um, mm -hmm. I know that they uh, recently released a food security report for, for refugees mm -hmm. uh, that have just moved here. Yeah, yes. speaking to Dakota, it sounds like they, they do a lot of work, especially um, around intersectionality and anti-racism and anti-colonialism. They're very much... Uh, I guess what you could call a social justice research group. I don't know if they would disagree with that. I don't know if Boz yeah, is looking at me like um, he would disagree with that. But. No, I mean, they say they spend $20,000 each year in the form of like $100 to $1,500 grants to students. Uh, they have a community library that has resources you can't find in the UVic one. that has been around for 30 years, uh, supporting hundreds of UVic students each year, as well as community organizations like Divest UVic, CFUV's Women's Collective, um, Esquimalt Nation, Community Action Bus, like all kinds of stuff. So, and they're like one of the few like of these kind of organizations in Canada and the only one in YYJ. I don't know why I said YYJ, Victoria. Well, I appreciated okay. that actually. Um, so like, Hashtag I, YYJ. I guess we'll just uh, keep ourselves posted via. via oh yeah. Letting. Like keep your eyes open. Like we're going to be digging into this. This is the, this is the controversy of the year. I think. <laughs> Uh, Miles Cormack, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. And that does it for another episode of You in the Ring. Uh, tune in next week, Tuesday at 10 a.m. Katie is up next with In Rainbows, uh, so please stay tuned for that. I want to thank uh, Salma for headlines and my producer, Liz MacArthur. I'm going to leave you uh, with a track here uh, by Peaches, Close Up, featuring Kim Gordon. Have a great Tuesday. <laughs>